Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to the very first ever episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and if you're not familiar with me, I am a recording, mixing, and mastering engineer. I've been in the industry for over 15 years, and I have been very fortunate in that time to work alongside bands such as Kiss, Collective Soul. I've worked with Ed Robertson from the Bare Naked Ladies, and I've done work for bands on record labels such as Universal, Sony, Republic, Roadrunner Records, and a whole bunch more. I also run the website MasterYourMix.com, and that website is dedicated to helping engineers, producers, and artists improve the quality of your recordings and your mixes. And on that website, I send out weekly tips and tricks and videos and all sorts of stuff to help people improve their craft. And this podcast is going to be an extension of that website. So with this podcast, my goal is to help you overcome any challenges that you've been facing with your mixes. And I'm going to be answering all of your questions. If you have anything that you'd like answered, please submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com and I'll answer them in future episodes. I've also got a ton of really great interviews lined up with some fantastic engineers that have produced some awesome, awesome records, and I'm sure they're going to give you a wealth of knowledge that you can learn from. So speaking of questions, let's dive into some questions that people have already submitted. So the first question comes from Gabriel Toussaint. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong, Gabe. So he asks, how do you mix drums so that they keep their punch without distorting the entire track? That's a really good question. The first thing I like to do whenever I'm starting off a mix is I always like to start off with drums first. I know some people like to start with vocals and all that kind of stuff, but for me, I always go to the drums first. And the very first two instruments that I go to are the kick and snare. And what I like to do with those is I first like to EQ them and I'll compress them and really clean them up and polish them up. So I'll get rid of any nasty frequencies that are there. If there's any sort of ring or any room sound that needs to be EQ'd out, I'll clear those out. Then once I've got the kick and snare sounding the way I like them, what I'll do is I'll then go to the fader. And what I try to do with my fader, with my kick and snare, is I try to get them so that they're peaking anywhere from about minus 9 to minus 6 dB on the meters. And then, once I've got that happening, before I go to the toms and the cymbals and all that kind of stuff, I like to go to the bass track next. So I'll add the bass in with the kick and snare, and I want to make sure that the level of them all combined is not hitting any more than minus 6 on the peak. Now, I'm not saying that you should be constantly hitting negative six there. I'm just talking about the peaks. So you should only have just a couple little spikes that hit that. And by doing it this way, you're going to allow yourself to have tons of headroom so that you can add the other instruments in. So maybe you have uh, keys or guitars or vocals or anything else. And it'll allow you to have lots of headroom so that you can bring in all of the different instruments and different elements and not drive your mix to the point of distorting. So once I've got all the gain staging set up, the next thing I like to do is I'll go to all the rest of the drums and I'll start doing the EQ and compression on that. And just a note with EQ, when it comes to drums, if you're trying to get a lot of the attack out of the drums, usually you'll be looking around the 8K range. That seems to be where you get a lot of the uh, the attack of it, the, the crispiness of it, and uh, it can help cut through a dense mix if you're if you're boosting around that range there. So once I've got all the drums all mixed up, what I also do is I send all of the drums to a drum bus. And on that drum bus, I'll put a compressor on there, and I just go really light with that compressor. So I'll go maybe 3 dB of reduction at the most. And with that, I'll use a slow attack and a fast release. And what the slow attack allows you to do is just let the transient information cut through. 
And with the fast release, it allows the compressor to release back to zero gain reduction in order to create more punch out of the next big hit. So then in addition to the drum bus, what I also like to do is I use some parallel compression. So with the parallel compression, that's really where I smack the crap out of the drums. And what I like to do is I'll send my kick, my snare, and my toms to the parallel compression bus. I don't really like sending my cymbals there too much because then things start to sound a little washy sometimes. But what I'll do on this parallel channel is I'll use a slow attack and again, a fast release, and I'll use tons of gain reduction. So maybe like 10 dB of gain reduction on these hits. And what this is going to do is it's going to give you a really, really punchy sound. And so then once we've got that punchy sound on the parallel channel, what I'll do is I'll blend it in with the drum bus channel so that we can have the full natured sound from the drum bus drums. And then we have the super pointy, attacky, punchy drums from the parallel channel. And so when you get that blend, that really, really helps to make your drums sound full, but still have the transient attack that you need to make them cut through a dense mix. And lastly, by leaving a lot of headroom like we discussed earlier, you leave a lot of room for the mastering stage to add even more punch to your drums. So when you're mixing with a lot of headroom, your track is normally going to sound pretty quiet in comparison to a commercial record, right? And when you bring your track to a mastering engineer, they're going to smooth everything out, make everything louder, and using their really high quality converters and, and uh compressors, they're going to be able to add even more smack and even more punch to your drums without it distorting. So the key is just to leave a lot of headroom so that you can bring levels up. So, you know, maybe you've added all your guitars and your bass and everything, and you still feel like you need some more room on your snare to come up. Well, you have that headroom, right? So if you leave that headroom, you'll be in a much better position to, to make your drums sound really big and punchy and really on top of the mix without getting into distortion. So give that a shot. All right, moving on. So the next question comes from Simon, and he asks, how do you mix vocals to a two-track instrumental? Well, first off, this isn't an ideal situation. So the first thing I would do is ask whoever gave you the tracks if they have the individual stems, because if they have those, it'll make your life so much easier. When you're dealing with a two-track instrumental, often what I find ends up happening is that whoever's made the instrumental, whoever's mixed it, has also just slammed the crap out of it with a compressor or a mastering limiter, and everything's all at zero. And if you add vocals on top of that, you're immediately going to start clipping your track. So you really want to avoid that. So see if you can get the stems first. But if you can't get the stems, then you got to be a little more creative with your mixing. Now, this is something I've done quite a few times, and I find it's often uh, very common in the hip-hop and rap scene. You often get these instrumental tracks. And the first thing I like to do when I have only an instrumental track is I pull down the fader of the instrumental so that that way I'm not at zero right away and I'm giving myself some headroom. And then what I'll do is I'll start mixing the vocals like I would normally want to process them. So I'll add my EQ, my filters, my compression, my effects, all the kind of stuff that I feel is necessary for the song to sound as best as it can. Now, a note with compression in this kind of situation is that because, again, you're often dealing with heavily compressed instrumental tracks, what I find you often have to do is heavily compress your vocal as well. And so you're going to want to make sure that you don't have a ton of dynamic range because if you do, it's often going to get swallowed up by the instrumental track. Again, this isn't an ideal thing, but sometimes that's just what you have to do. You have to really compress the vocal to make it really sit in there. In terms of EQ, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to also add your high-pass filters to get rid of any low-end rumble and any other frequencies that might be uh, kind of nasty frequencies, you'll want to EQ those out. 
And I also find that with EQ, when you're doing instrumentals against the vocal, you often have to add a little bit of top end to the vocal. And that's because when the people are mixing these instrumental tracks, they're not mixing it with a vocal. So because of that, they can get away with making their drums and their guitars or whatever else is in the instrumental track. You'll find that they're often very bright because they sound great in an instrumental mix, but they're not putting into consideration that that's often where a lot of the presence of the vocals is. So you want to make sure that you're adding some top end to your vocals so that they can compete with the instrumental track. And conversely, you're also going to want to cut some frequencies in the instrumental track to suit the vocal a little better. So you want your vocal track to sit on top of your instrumental, but, but still blend with it pretty well, right? So to do that, you're going to have to carve out a little bit of space. Typically, I find around the 4 to 8K range. Uh, in the instrumental track, you're going to want to carve out a little bit of a wider frequency cut there. And same with around the 200 to 400 range. I find that that's often a problematic area as well. And then that'll allow the vocal to still have the depth of it. It'll have some low frequency clarity. And it'll also have the top end to make it very, uh, very clear and understandable. Then lastly, the other thing I like to do is I send my vocal track and my instrumental track both to a master bus channel. And on that master bus channel, I do some very light bus compression, talking maybe 3 dB of gain reduction, and only on any sort of loud vocal parts that jump out. So you don't want it to be like constantly compressing it. And this will help really glue together the vocal with the instrumental track and kind of put everything together and make it sound cohesive and like it was like that all along. So give that a shot, EQing, compressing, and doing some cutting in your instrumental track and also bringing the fader down, I think that'll really help you with getting your instrumental tracks to blend well with your vocal tracks. So our last question comes from Ryan, and he asks, do you have any tips for proper panning? Well, when it comes to proper panning, I mean, for me, the way I look at panning is that it's just to create some separation in the tracks while still making everything sound cohesive. But you don't want everything to be panned out so wide and so separated from each other that everything sounds really disjointed. So, I mean, I usually subscribe to the left center right idea, which is that you either pan things either hard left, hard right, or in the center. And that just creates a lot more width in your mixes, but you want everything to still sound cohesive. So there are some exceptions to the rules where I will pan some things on the inside. So let's start with drums. With drums, I know there's some people that will argue between drummer perspective or audience perspective. And for me personally, I am a drummer. So I love to mix my drums from the drummer perspective. And the reason why I really like to do it from the drummer perspective is because I feel that as a musician, when I'm listening to tracks, I want to be able to learn the track. And to me, it's easier for me to remember the parts if I can hear it in the stereo field the way I would hear it if, as if I were sitting behind the drum kit. And I don't think that that's something that's often considered by a lot of people when they're mixing. I think they just choose one way or another. But for me, I personally like the idea of being able to listen to a track and hearing the drums where I would see them if I were sitting behind my drum kit. So for that, I like to have the kick and snare in the center. That's kind of the only exception. I mean, when you're, when you're sitting behind a drum kit, your kick is in the middle, but your snare is a little off to the side. But your kick and snare are really the heart of the rhythm, so they have to be panned up in the center. In terms of toms, I like to pan the toms so that I have my rack tom slightly off to the left. Uh, if I'm in Pro Tools, usually that's around 20 to the left. 
And my floor tom, I'll place a little bit further on the right-hand side, because that's how it would be in a drum set. And so I'll place that maybe 30 on the right. You don't want your toms to be at completely opposite ends and have one fully on the left and one fully on the right, because if you do that, when you do a drum fill, it's going to sound like this ping-pong effect. So you need your toms to sound a little bit closer so that they're a little more cohesive um, between the snare and, and the two toms whenever there's a drum fill going on. With my hi-hat, I'll also slightly pan that to the left as well. Similar to the rack tom, I'll place that maybe 25 to the left, because that's how it would be on a drum set. And then my ride would be maybe 25 to the right. So it's a little more symmetrical there. And then with my overheads and my room tracks, those ones I like to go full left and full right. And that just creates a lot more width in the track and makes the drum sound a lot bigger. So then for bass, because bass is another big rhythmic element, I also like to have the bass right up the center along with the kick and snare. And then that just really locks the rhythm section right in the middle of the track. For rhythm guitars, usually when I'm tracking rhythm guitars, I like to double up the rhythm guitar parts and I'll pan them full left and full right. Um, however, if I only have one guitar, what I'll sometimes try doing is, if I only have one rhythm guitar, sometimes I'll offset it a little bit to the left or to the right, and then I'll add a reverb or a delay on the opposite side to create the feeling of it still being there, but it's not as present as it is on the other side. And this is helpful too for when you have lead guitar parts. You can put the lead on the opposite side of the rhythm guitar, and uh, that'll kind of create this back and forth, which is pretty fun. But generally with lead guitars, I put those right up the center. For keyboards, I like to just pan those hard left and right, especially if you're using pads and that kind of sound, then it just creates a lot more atmosphere in your track and makes everything sound really wide and full. Lead vocals, definitely, I always put them right up the center. You need them to be really nice and clear. Um, if I have doubles, I typically put those right up the center as well. But if I start getting into harmonies, then I'll start to spread those out a little bit more. Usually I'll double up the harmonies so that they sound like really chorusy, and I'll have those panned hard left and hard right. But if I have maybe multiple harmonies where I've got like fifths and thirds and all that kind of stuff stacked on top of each other, then I start to pan a little bit more inwards to create kind of more of a, a choir feel where everybody's kind of placed in a different position depending on what they're singing. So yeah, that's how I pan out a lot of the elements in my mixes. So give it a shot and see what works best for you. So with that, that is the end of the very first episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. Guys, thanks so, so, so much for listening and joining me today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Go on iTunes and give it a rating and a review. That would be amazing if you could do that. And also, if this is your first time ever hearing about Master Your Mix, please go to the website, masteryourmix.com. And on the website, I have a link at the very top of the page to download a free copy of my Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. And that blueprint is designed to show you some EQ and compression settings to try on a variety of different instruments within your mix in order to help you get better results faster. So check that out, and I'll see you in the next episode, guys. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.